It's podcasting time! This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan, the podcast. I am Jonathan Isaacson, your host, same as always. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places. And while you're there, please rate the podcast, give it a review, and share the podcast with a friend or two. So this is episode three of our story. And if you haven't listened to episodes one or two, one and, well, two, maybe you didn't listen to it, depending, but definitely you need to listen to episode one. And if you're listening to this podcast first, episode three, I mean, you do you, you weirdo. But seriously, I love all five of my listeners. I would never call you a weirdo, at least to your face. But anyway, for real. This is episode three of the story of the leftist radicals who killed some of their own comrades through extremely violent self-critique sessions. I mean, sessions that basically came down to beating the crap out of members just to prove their commitment to the cause or something like that. I mean, it was, for all intents and purposes, a street gang, but in the mountains of Japan. Um, yeah, I mean, 12 members would end up dead, beaten, starved, and tied up outdoors for days in the snowy mountains in February in Gunma. And yes, one of those killed was a pregnant woman. The members were trying to remove all humanity, really, from themselves, and they were preparing for the battle of annihilation with guns. And it was just basically all kind of crazy talk. And that was episode two. Like I say, I know some of you maybe skipped it. Uh, just didn't feel like listening to the details. But that's all you really... That, that's that's the gist of, of what happened in episode two. A lot of people died um, because other members said they weren't hardcore leftist enough or something. Or, you know, yeah. They cared about their hair and their clothes, even just the tiniest modicum of caring. But whatever. Let's pick up our story in mid-February 1972. Now, at this point, as I said, 12 of the 29 members had died. The 29 members who had gone to the woods of Gunma um, to go with their training sessions to kind of prepare themselves for a battle with police, essentially. So 12 of them had died, leaving 17, and that included the two leaders, uh, uh, Mori Tsuneo and Nagata Hiroko. Um, so they say they were the, became the United Red Army's number one and number two, respectively. And they were hiding out in the mountain base in Gunma, and apparently at this point they're starting to run low on funds. So in the middle of February... Mori and Nagata, they would return to the Tokyo area on a mission to find some funding. And when they headed back to Gunma, the police, who I guess at this point were starting to zero in on the mountain hideout location, the police arrested the two leaders at the base of the mountain before they could return to their comrades. And apparently around the same other time, uh, the same other time, around the same time, six other members were also apparently arrested. 
And at this time, I guess, I think what I saw that the, the dead, the 12 dead were discovered. Um, but at this point, it seems that the violence, the, the, the dead comrades was not really made known to the public yet. Um, so yeah, of the 17 who were still alive, eight were now in police custody. But that left nine members of the United Red Army who managed to evade the police for a while longer. They initially sheltered in a nearby cave for a couple of days, right? They, they got out of their hideout and they went to a nearby cave for a couple of days. And, bef- and on February 16th, they decided to set out across the mountains towards Karuizawa in Nagano. Again, I've said this a lot of times, this is the middle of winter in the mountains where there is snow. This is probably like a 30 kilometer, 40 kilometer trek over the top of mountains, right? The border between Gunma and Nagano is a mountain range. The peaks of the mountains are the border. So they have to go over an entire mountain range to get from Gunma to Nagano in the snow. Right. And this all just seems bonkers to me. I mean, this whole story is bonkers. And a lot of it's bonkers in a horrible, terrible way. But this part, this, you know, deciding to hike 30 kilometers in the middle of February across the mountains while of trying to evade police. This is just bonkers in a bonkers way. And since they were fleeing from the police, they probably would have had to stay off major roads because, I mean, they're probably pretty... They're not exactly... Uh, prob- they kind of stick out, I imagine, at this point. And according to Igarashi, so the scholar I keep quoting... Um, So according to Igarashi's article, the nine were going to go across the border on a very treacherous mountain route, walking through streams to throw off the police dogs, to throw the police dogs off their scent, literally, um, because these nine apparently reeked. I mean, they were stinky. And I mean, that makes some amount of sense. Um, They'd been in their mountain hideout for months at this point. You know, they were trying to deny themselves their earthly desires, their bourgeois thinking. And apparently, um, maybe, I mean, maybe this wasn't like expressly, you know, explicitly stated, but being clean kind of seems to have been part of that. Um, And that stinkiness, that would be at least some of the members undoing. And we'll we'll get there in a few minutes. So don't worry, we'll we'll come back to this, these stinking revolutionaries. Um, Anyway, yeah, so they they said going through the mountains, walking in streams, water in the freezing weather. Just, like I say, nuts. But somehow, the nine United Red Army members managed to make their way to Karuizawa, where we started this whole tale in episode one. Now, apparently, they had something of an outdated map that didn't have all of the new developments of all the summer homes and retreat lodges in the hills around Karuizawa. 
And the resort area where they found themselves, really, I mean, it was a temple, essentially, to the new Japanese consumerism. And I imagine it must have been something of a slap in the face of these would-be revolutionaries. They're, they're trying to push Japan to communism, to anti-capitalist ideas. But here they are in Karuizawa, surrounded by, you know, a temple of consumerism. You know, however they actually felt about the summer homes, the retreats, they needed food and supplies. So they split up into two groups. Now, four of the four of the nine made their way towards central Karuizawa to search for provisions. But as they wandered through Karuizawa, their revolution was about to come to an end. And to quote Igarashi again, their bedraggled look, filthy hands, and strong stench warned a kiosk clerk who immediately alerted the station supervisor. The United Red Army members' stoic efforts to transform themselves into revolutionary soldiers by transcending their bodily needs were eventually frustrated by their own unhygienic bodies. They got busted for being dirty, stinking commies. Literally. However, there were still five members out there in the resort development area. And they would end up in the Asama Sanso Lodge. They, they stopped in another lodge briefly, but then moved over to... I, I, didn't, I couldn't quite figure out why, but not really that important. So they ended up in the Asama Sanso Lodge, where, as we mentioned earlier, Mutayasuko was the only person at the time. Which brings us fully back to the story where we started. So these five men, bedraggled, stinking, and having just trekked three days through the winter mountains, took Muta hostage, and they had watched the news of Chairman Mao's meeting with President Nixon, which, if you'll remember, was happening at this exact same time. And as I mentioned in the way back at the beginning of our story, back in episode one, the Asama Lodge was a perfect fortress for the United Red Army members to repel efforts of authorities to get them out. They barricaded themselves up on the top couple of floors and literally had an upper hand on the cops. They also ended up tying Mutayasko to a bed, um, presumably to prevent her from fleeing. And we'll talk more about her towards the end. Um, I mean, spoil, good spoiler alert, she survives the whole ordeal relatively unharmed. Like I said, we'll, we'll come back and talk about her at, towards the end. So... So we have our, our five revolutionaries. They've got their hostage. They have barricaded themselves up on the top floor, top two floors of the of the Asama Sanso, of the Asama Lodge. And after three days, the cops finally cut off the power to the lodge because there was no movement. There nothing was happening as far as, you know, getting the hostage out, getting the getting the five to either, you know, give up their arms or whatever. Nothing was happening. So the police said, okay. Cut off the power after three days. But the five members still held their position. The top floor as the lounge had the kitchen, which meant they probably had enough food to hold out for a long time. Remember, there was a group of employees staying at the lodge when all this went down. But of course, the employees were not at the lodge. They were off, you know, ice skating at the time the Red Army members, the United Red Army members entered. 
So there was probably a lot of food because, I mean, when I say lodge, it's essentially a small hotel, a large kind of bed and breakfast kind of situation. So you'd have had food for a couple dozen people, at least, I would guess. Um, so, you know, five of them and they're, they have been practicing, you know, denying their bodily needs. So they could probably survive on a lot less food. So they probably had enough food for, you know, several weeks if they'd really needed to. But anyway, so it was after the police cut the power that they set up loudspeakers and they began urging the radicals to come out. The parents of some of the radicals traveled to Karuizawa and begged their sons to surrender. At least one of the parents who begged them to surrender was, in fact, the parent of one of the 12 who had died in Gunma during the self-critiques, but no one knew yet who the members in the lodge were, so the parents, this parent didn't know that their son was dead. They didn't know that yet. The standoff would drag on for several more days. Actually, almost a week, actually. Um, and by the 25th of February, the riot police started making preparations to storm the fortress. Fire hoses or water cannons, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure which one it was, but a high-powered water uh, delivery system of some sort. Uh, pitching machines, like baseball pitching machines with rocks, uh, were prepared. And so was a wrecking ball. On the night of the 27th, the police, in preparation for the final siege, they bombarded the upper floors where the, where the United Red Army members were, and they were flinging rocks with, with those pitching machines, with the baseball pitching machines. The idea was to prevent the occupiers from getting any sleep, you know, wear down their resolve and their defenses. And finally... On the morning of the 28th of February, nearly 10 days since these five radicals took Mutayasko hostage, the police issued their final ultimatum. Come out, or we're coming in. The radicals did not come out. So, the police went in. With a literal wrecking ball. And water cannons and tear gas. And I mean, it's, it's actually kind of wild because you can find video of the police storming the, the fortress on YouTube. Um, and actually, this is a good time, I think, to take a little digression to talk about the media coverage. So the hostage standoff had been going on for about 10 days. So literally everyone in the country knew about it. It was quite obviously the top of all the news stories by February 28th, the day that this all ended. And around 6.30 p.m. that night, because, spoilers, it takes the police the entire day to finally get everyone out of the, the, the lodge, the, the fortress. So 6.30, which is right after they finally arrest, make their arrests. So at 6.30 that night, Nearly 90% of TVs in Japan were tuned in on the ongoing standoff. Reportedly that day, it was, a, it was a Monday, reportedly traffic in Tokyo was lighter than a normal Monday. So apparently once everyone knew that the police were going in, everyone was glued to the news. And this being 1972, so not that long ago, 
right? There is still tape of most of the broadcasts. So you can watch this all on YouTube. And as I say, it's wild. I mean, I'll put up a link um, in the show description of someone kind of put together kind of a, they just kind of pasted together a bunch of the clips and they're some kind of also, some it's also uh, the newscasters reflecting on, I think the 10th anniversary, maybe the 20th anniversary of, of, of the event. And so, yeah, there is kind of a, a mishmash. Some of it's the actual footage from the time. Some of it's the people who are reporting, reflecting on it. But it's all in Japanese, but you can go back, you kind of skip through and watch some of the action. Um, so, yeah, so they say the coverage was, it was wall to wall. I mean, I, I would tune in to see what was going on, at least some of the time, um, if I had been there, but... So yeah, um, a little after 10 a.m. So we'll go back to the morning here of the 28th. So 10 a.m., the wrecking ball swung into action and made, at, at first they made a big big old hole in the wall, apparently near the staircase from what the, what the news reporters were saying. And then the water cannon, the fire, whatever they have prepared, the water starts to blast, they start to blast the place with water. And it seemed that the police were trying to make it as uncomfortable as possible for the five United Red Army members. I mean, so you, so the night before, they were trying to keep them up all night. Now they're blast, you know, uh, wrecking ball, you know, taking out holes in the wall, then blasting the place with water. I mean, February, mountains, it's cold. And so now there's a hole in the wall. It's cold. There's no electricity. And... Now it's soaking wet inside the bedroom where they are, along with their hostage, Musayasko. And then they moved the wrecking ball, and they just started dropping it on the roof over and over again. Uh, uh, kind of, they dropped it on the roof over the entryway, over the genkan, it's called in Japanese, so the entryway. And the roof, at least over the entryway where they're doing this operation, was made out of metal, which is actually pretty common in Japanese houses of, you know, houses and things like of that, of this era, of the late 60s, early 70s. Um, I've had houses in Japan I've lived in that had a metal, that have had metal roofs. It's, it's a pretty common thing. And so they're dropping this wrecking ball, this huge wrecking ball over and over on the top of this, uh, the, this, the roof over the Ginkan. And eventually the roof just gave up and just pff, kind of fell off. Like, nope, I'm done. And so by noon, so the operation starts about 10, 10, so about two hours later, the police are now inside and had the bottom few floors of the place secured. But as I mentioned back at the beginning of all this, the layout of the Asama Lodge made an easily defended fortress, right? This, the very narrow hallways, sharp turns, probably very steep steps, um, because I mean, it's 19, it was built in the 60s. The building codes were different in Japan in the 60s, right? And so they, the, the radicals, they're up on the top floor, easily, easy, easily able to defend their position. And the police couldn't get up to the very top floor because by this point, the radicals, they're just up on the very top floor with their hostage. And the standoff continues, continued on into the afternoon and into the evening. And like I said, the police, they're making progress, but it's very slow. Now, all the while, the radicals, remember, they have guns, they have their shotguns, and they are taking shots at the police the entire time from their superior position. 
Through the course of the day, they actually killed two police officers. They shot another one in the face, but he survived. Um, and one of the shootings was actually captured on TV, on live TV. So I, I, I forget I, my time sequence. It's hard because like the, I think this was kind of late afternoon, early evening. It's maybe kind of middle of the afternoon at this point. So the police had managed to get, they're now on the same floor as the radicals. And there's a balcony. And they're out on the balcony. The police are on the balcony trying to see if they can get into the windows where the radicals are. And at some point, the police, I guess, they turn, they just turn their heads for a minute. And a United Red Army guy gets off a shot out of the window. And apparently that's one of the cops that gets gets killed, I think. Um they also apparently, the, the radicals, they shot a bystander who apparently had wandered into the restricted area to get a better look or something to, to see what was going on. Just, yeah, got shot and actually died. So three people died this day. Um, all of them were shot in this one. And so this goes on. This went on just for hours. Once the police had their openings in the wall, you know, with the wrecking ball and the water cannons, they started firing tear gas canisters into the room. And you can see on the videos, you know, the YouTube videos, you can see the moment when the radicals realize that they need to open windows to get the air in and the gas out. You can see one of them banging on the window. So they've got it barricaded. It also has these heavy storm shutters. Um, and... So they've got everything barricaded, storm shuttered, and you can see the rat like banging on a window trying to knock it out and then try, you know, shaking the storm, storm shutter trying to get it to fall off. And eventually they get a window out, the storm shutter just falls to the ground, and then this big plume of tear gas just kind of billows out the window. And now by this point, which okay, it's some point late afternoon, early evening, it's obvious that these five, the five United Red Army members, they're not getting away. It's it, the, jig, the, the jig is up for them. The entire place was surrounded by riot cops. The cops were there up on the same floor as the radicals. They're just, you know, there's just a, now there's just a, a bedroom door between them. But the bedroom door was barricaded with furniture and piles of futons. Now, a futon, Japanese-style mattress... It's not like an American futon. It's it's a little different. And I'm guessing that the 1972 futons that they were using were probably really heavy. Now, I've used some old futons before, and they're fine for sleeping. You know, you sleep just fine on them, but they are heavy. And I'm guessing that pretty much all the futons in the Asama Sanso in 1972 were this dense, heavy futons. And there would have been a lot of them. Remember, it's kind of like a small hotel. And so they would have made for really good barricading materials, right? They'll absorb bullets. Um, they're heavy. They're dense. Just good thing to barricade a door with if you got a bunch of them. The cops finally start getting through. They manage to grab one of the two Kato brothers who were, you know, they're 40% of the five that are here were the Katos. Right? Remember the Katos, right? Um, their oldest brother was one of the 12 who died in the woods in Gunma. 
The two younger Kato brothers are two of the five in the Asuma Sanso. The police managed to grab one of the Kato. I think they got the youngest one, I'm pretty sure. But the other four, the other four uh, radicals, they dove into this big pile of futons, you know, and were kind of buried under these futons, were still firing their guns out of the futons, trying to keep the police at bay as long as they possibly could. Until finally, a little bit after 6 p.m. on the 28th of February, more than 280 hours after taking Muta Yasuko hostage in the Asama Sanso, the last five members of the United Red Army were apprehended, and their hostage, Muta Yasuko, was unharmed. As the police led the five out, Fuji Television which is one of the big major networks here in Japan, they, they managed to get footage of the police leading the five out. Uh, it, was a, it was a big scoop. Not even NHK, the national broadcaster, got the footage of them coming out. And it's really kind of interesting to watch the five because the first guy you see, he's surprisingly clean cut. He doesn't look like someone who's been hiding in the mountains for months and then you spent the last 10 days in a standoff with police. So yeah, it's a little bit of a surprise. But then you see the second guy and he's like, well, yeah, that, that's what I was expecting. So yeah, that, that, that's in that, the, the video. You can you kind of fast forward towards the end. Now for her part, Mutayasko, the hostage, she was in relatively good condition considering the ordeal she had just gone through. Though... She would never say much about it. Actually, she never said anything about it. She gave her statement to the police, and she said that the United Red Army members had treated her reasonably well. Uh, I mean, except, you know, that whole tying her to the bed thing. Um, what I think she meant is that they never threatened her with physical harm. They made sure she was fed, made sure she got her food, made sure she would use the toilet as needed. But... They didn't want her escaping, so I guess as far as hostage takers go, which you shouldn't do, but if you're going to do it, I guess they did a good job. I mean, yeah. Except after all of that, she never said anything about the event in public, right? She gave her statement to the police, and that was it. She never talked in public about what happened. And I mean, who can blame her? It was a media circus surrounding the incident, and I'm sure that she had some pretty serious trauma, regardless of how well she was treated by her captors. I mean, of course, if they'd really wanted to treat her well, let her go. Just take their make you know make their stand on their own without a hostage. You know, just barricade, take the take the lodge, kick her out, barricade themselves in, and make their stand. You know, but whatever. What what I I guess the point I'm saying here is, so yeah, she was physically unharmed, but I'm sure she had some pretty serious PTSD after all this. Um, and dealing with the media, I mean, Japanese tabloids are pretty wild, you know, in case you didn't know. Um, dealing with the media probably wasn't something she wanted to do. So, good on her. I honestly, I can't find any information as to whether or not she's still alive. Um, so she was 31 when all this went down. 
you know, 49 years ago. So she'd be, you know, 80 years old, give or take a few months at this point. So it's quite possible that she's still alive. And whether or not she's alive or whether she's passed, I hope that after the ordeal, she was able to find some peace in her life. But what about our five radicals? Well, as I said at the start of the story, a lot of people were maybe not necessarily sympathetic to their cause, but they were at least understanding and respected their willingness to take a stand, you know, and take action for their beliefs. However, all of that very quickly changed once the public started to become aware of what had happened in the mountains of Gunma in the months leading up to the events in Kuroizawa. The violent purges and the deaths of dozens, you know, do not dozens, of one dozen, due to the beatings, the starvations, the exposure, turned nearly all sympathy the radicals might have garnered into horror and disgust. And then a few months later, there's the Lode, mass, the Lode Airport Massacre, which I mentioned, right, where the Japanese radicals killed, what, 26, injured 79 at the air, at Lode Airport in, in Tel Aviv. That's in May of the same year. And there were some hijackings around the same time. And so the events of late 1971, early 1972, really marked an end to any sort of broad support for leftist movements in Japan. Consumerism and capitalism that the United Red Army was railing against, it was benefiting too many average workaday Japanese people. Most people wanted their TVs, their new cars. The system was working for most people, right? As I mentioned from the uh, the article, the the article from uh, that, I, that I keep going going back to, ninety percent of the Japanese public felt that they were part of the middle class. That was an improvement from 10, 15 years ago, before that. So, yeah, the, there, there just wasn't a lot of room left for the far left movement in Japan. Now, the five, the five radicals were, of course, tried and sent to prison to serve out lengthy, lengthy prison sentences. Okay, at least one of them, I should say, wasn't, wasn't a prison. It was juvenile detention center reform school thing. Uh, because the youngest of the Katos, he was only 16 at the time of all this. And one of the five um, was sentenced to death. Um, because, yes, Japan does have the death penalty. But I believe his sentence has still not been carried out, uh, at least as far as I can tell. And that is the story of the Asama Sanso incident. And kind of the end of the leftist movement in Japan. So, yeah, we'll end it there. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was a kind of a big story. And, uh, yeah, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. Um, this podcast is on most of the major platforms, right? It's on Apple, it's on Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora. Uh, if it's not on your favorite place, let me know. I'll look into getting it there as well. You can find the Twitter for the podcast at Just Another Cast. Um, you know, get updates about you know the new podcasts coming out whenever they come out on their sporadic, occasional you know uh, schedule. Learn about a little Japanese history. 
And you can email the show if you got questions or comments or ideas. Just another jerk podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can find the information on the website, which again, I keep saying I will work on it. I promise. Spring, uh, not spring break, summer break coming soon. Tinyurl.com slash jerkpod. And uh, yeah, so hopefully that'll get updated soonish. But that is all for me. I'm Jonathan Isaacson, and I'm out. Peace.